Let's all go to Yahweh in prayer. Father, we thank you for the blessing of your Sabbath day. We pray that you would be with your people today. We especially pray for those who are not here today due to sickness. Uh, we know that certainly COVID is, is going around along with other seasonal sicknesses. We pray that those who are sick, that you'd be with them, that you'd provide a speedy and uh, recovery so that they would be healthy again. And uh, Father, we also pray that your blessing would be upon those who are not here, who are unable to be here, those who are alone in fellowship, that you'd bless them. And Father, we give you all praise and recognize. Amen. You all may be seated. It is a uh, blessing to be here today. Well, today I want to talk about this uh, concept of the immortal soul, the immortal soul, and uh, ask, is this something we find in the Bible? Is this a concept rooted in Scripture? We know that the belief of the immortal soul goes back to the early church. We certainly know that. But as we'll see in just a moment, this belief goes back much, much further. It was much earlier than the early church. According to many scholars and historians, this belief arose from the Egyptians, later with the Babylonians and others, and their view of the afterlife. We also know that the Greeks believed in the immortal soul. According to most and many scholars, it was the Greeks who would pass this on to Judaism, which would then pass this on to Christianity. In fact, many theologians acknowledge that the notion of the immortal soul is nowhere to be found within Scripture. This is it's absent within Scripture, within the Old Testament. Before I begin a, uh, my message, I want to give you a review of some of the things we're going to review, talk about today. Number one, I want to share with you several references showing the origin of the immortal soul. You know, it's important that we understand history. And for me, I always find a lot of value in going back historically to understand a certain theology or a certain belief. So we're going to do that. We're going to turn to scholarship and historians to understand this concept of the immortal soul. After this, we're going to review the meaning of the Hebrew word nephesh, or that's the word for a soul within the Hebrew. So we're going to re- review nephesh and what that means and see some examples. After this, we're going to review the Greek word suke. Suke is as close as we get to nephesh. Again, it's the word for soul that we find within the Greek New Testament. Again, this corresponds to the Hebrew nephesh. And we're going to see some examples of this within the New Testament, how this word is used and how it is applied. In the end, we're going to review some examples used in the New Testament, mainly from Thayer's, that are used to support the concept of the immortal soul. We'll see some of those, for example, specifically. So to begin, I want to turn to the Encyclopedia Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature. Kind of a large title there. But it is a really great reference and lots of information here. It says, perhaps we may say that the idea of immortality assumed a more definite shape among the Egyptians. So we see here where this ushers back to us, the Egyptians. For they clearly recognized not only a dwelling place of the dead, but also a future judgment. Osiris, the G.O.D., judges the dead, and having weighed their heart in the scale of justice, he sends the wicked to regions of darkness. 
Well, the just are sent to dwell with the, says, G-O-D, or God of light. The latter, we read on an inscription, quote, found favor before the great G-O-D. They dwell in glory where they live a heavenly life. The bodies they have quitted will forever respond to their tombs, repose in their tombs, whether rejoice in the life of the supreme G-O-D. Immortality was thus plainly taught, although bound up with it was the idea of the preservation of the body to which they attached a great importance as a condition of the soul's continued life. So there was a connection there between the body and the preservation of the body and the continuation of the soul. And hence they built vast tombs and embalmed their bodies as if to last forever. So here again, this is from the Cyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature. What do we learn here? We learn that the concept of the immortal soul really goes back to the ancient uh, Egyptians and their view and their theology of the afterlife. We see here that the concept of the immortal soul did not originate also with the early church. Many assume that this is something that the church discovered or originated with them. Now, that's not the case. This is an important truth to understand. You know, like so many other beliefs, like so many other beliefs we find within Christianity, this one too, came through the adoption of pagan ideas. And again, in this case, it ushers back to the Egyptians and their view of the afterlife. This is why, just as a side note, they went to such great lengths to preserve the body because there was a connection, as they viewed it, between the body and their immortal soul. So to preserve the soul, they would have to preserve the body, and thus this is the reason they would embalm as they did in hopes to preserve the body, thus again preserving the soul. I want to move on now and share what we find from the Jewish Encyclopedia. The Jewish Encyclopedia says this, the belief that the soul continues in its existence after the dissolution of the body is a matter of philosophical or theological speculation rather than of simple faith and is accordingly nowhere taught in the Holy Scripture. The belief in the immortal immortality of the soul came to the Jews from contact with Greek thought and chiefly through the philosophy of Plato, his principal exponent, who was led it through Orphic and Eleusinian mysteries in which Babylonian and Egyptian views were strangely blended. You know, this is quite a statement here. According to the Jewish encyclopedia, this belief of the immortality of the soul is nowhere to be found within the Holy Scriptures, within the Bible, within the Old Testament. It is missing. It is absent. We also see here that the Jews received this concept from the Greeks. This belief came through the Greeks. Before this, there was no concept of immortality for the Jews. This, again, was given to them through the Greeks, which, again, would give, them, give Christianity this belief later on. Now, it also mentions here a man named Plato. Who is Plato? Or Plato was a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher. He uh, lived between 20 BCE and 50 CE, so he was around during the time of the Messiah. Now, you may be asking, what is a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher? It kind of seems like a contradiction, you know, to, to have a Hellenistic, Hellenistic meaning Jewish, uh, Greek, Jewish philosopher. Or this was a man who adopted Greek ideas within their own Jewish culture. That's what a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher was. 
Again, according to what we find here, Plato was instrumental in the Jews adopting this belief of the immortal soul. You see, this man took Greek ideas and he developed these ideas and then introduced these ideas to the Jewish culture. Now, we also see a connection here to Orphic and Eleusinian mysteries. Both of these belief systems were connected to uh, Greek theology or Greek mythology, really, which helped to solidify the concept of the immortal soul. In fact, Plutarch, a Greek philosopher, Platonist, lived between uh, 46 and 119 of the Common Era, said this about the Eleusinian mysteries, quote, because of these sacred and faithful promises given, given in the mysteries, we hold it firmly for an undoubted truth that our soul is incorruptible and immortal. So again, that is according to these Eleusinian mysteries. This was a pagan Greek concept, a pagan Greek philosophy. And we see here that it understood that the soul was immortal as we see within Christianity today. I also want to point here point out here that it mentions the Babylonians as with all things pagan it always seems to go back to the Babylonians or somehow the Babylonians are involved and we certainly see a connection here with the Babylonians so we see a connection with the Egyptians we see a connection with the Babylonians we see a connection with the Greeks who again later then would give this to Plato and give this to the Jews who would then later give this to Christianity Well, let's move on to another source. This is something we're all familiar with, the Encyclopedia Britannica. So here's here's what it says about the immortality of the soul. It says, human beings seem always to have had some notion of a shadowy devil that survived the death of the body. But the idea of the soul as a mental entity with intellectual and moral qualities, interacting with a physical organism but capable of continuing after its dissolution, derives in Western thought by Plato, and entered into Judaism during approximately the last century before the Common Era, and thence into Christianity. So we see here before Christianity really existed or was budding, we find here that this concept was introduced and accepted by many Jews, who again would later introduce this into Christianity through that Greek influence. We see again here that Plato, this Hellenistic Jewish philosopher, was the one who brought this belief into Judaism, which again, would give it to Christianity. You know, it's amazing how much we can simply learn when we read. It's amazing. You know, here we are simply referring to the Jewish Encyclopedia, here the Encyclopedia Britannica, and we understand these truths. If somebody really wants to understand the truth, it's not hard to find. I'm convinced of that. That's one of the reasons why, as, as a believer here, I I believe it's important that we stand in boldness. Some people shy away from the truth simply because we're the minority and we're the vast minority. But I believe that we can prove the truth through references like this and certainly the Bible. I want to share with you one more reference here, or just a few more references. I think there's two more references. So the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, here's what it says about death. It says, we are influenced always more or less by the Greek. Isn't that true? There's always influence by the Greeks. Platonic idea that the body dies, but the soul is immortal. Such an idea is utterly contrary to the Israelite consciousness and is nowhere found in the Old Testament. That's an amazing statement. That's an amazing statement. We see really nothing new here, but again, we see that the notion of the immortal soul arose not from Hebraic thought. 
we see here that this belief arose from the Greeks, which again would go back even further to the Egyptians and to the Babylonians. Or here's one more reference about the immortality of the soul. This is, and this is from the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. Quote, the departure of the nephesh, soul, must be viewed as a figure of speech, for it does not continue to exist independently of the body, but dies with it. No biblical text authorizes the statement that the soul is separated from the body at the moment of death. And that's essentially what we find with the concept of the immortal soul. The concept of the immortal soul states that the body and soul are distinct. And that when somebody dies, the soul continues to live on. This is not a Hebraic thought. This is a Grecian thought. This is something that came from the Greeks, which again borrowed it from the Babylonians and the Egyptians. So I want to move on now and talk about the meaning of nephesh, because again, the word nephesh is where we derive the word soul, and understand how this word is used within Scripture. So here's the meaning of nephesh based on Strong's. It says nephesh from 5314, a breathing creature. That's what it means, a breathing creature. That is animal, a vitality used very widely in the literal, accommodated or figurative sense, bodily or mental. So as we see here from Strong's, nephesh refers to what? Nephesh refers to a breathing creature. We also see here that there's nothing indicating an immortal soul. There's no indication, there's no definition, there's no mention here to the immortal soul. That is a soul that is independent from the body. This definition is absent from what we find here. From this definition, we find that nephesh refers to a living or breathing creature. This includes both animals and human beings by definition. So an animal is a nephesh. A human being is a nephesh. Anything that contains the breath of life is a nephesh, according to Scripture. Now, here's how the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew Lexicon defines nephesh. It says, soul, living being, self, life, self, person, desire, appetite, emotion, and passion. So as we saw from Strong's, we find here that the Brown Driver Briggs defines nephesh as a living being, as a living being. It also goes on to say that this includes our desire, appetite, emotion, and passion. Well, nephesh primarily refers to a breathing or living being, again, whether human or animal, it can refer, it says here, to emotions and passions within us. Now, as we'll see later, and we're going to see some examples of this, when it does refer to our emotions or appetites or passions or whatever else it is, it's still always connected with a nephesh, with a person. So it is not a passion alone. It is a passion that a person may have. It's always connected with that person. Now, what do we see here? What is missing? What's missing, again, is this concept of the immortal soul. Brian Driver Briggs, a very well-respected source, says nothing about the immortal soul. And again, this is where we receive this concept of the soul is from Nephesh. I want to share with you now how the King James translates this word. So as we see on the slide here, the King James 5315 translates nephesh in the following ways. Number one is soul at 475 times, life with 117 times, 
Persons 29 times, mind is 15 times, heart is 15 times, creature is 9 times, body is 8 times, himself is 8 times, yourself 6 times, dead is 5 times, will is 4 times, desire is 4 times, so on and so forth. So we see here how the King James renders this word nephesh. And notice that 417 times, 75 times, is this rendered soul. But we also find that it's rendered a life 117 times and person 29 times. And this is the meaning of nephesh. It is a person. It is a creature. It is. I would <clears throat> say that the word soul for nephesh is used far less in modern translations. If we look at the Revised Standard, if we look at some of these newer translations, it will use soul far less than it will use life or one of these other synonyms that we find here. But again, what we're missing is immortal soul. Notice that not once do we find the wordy or phrase immortal soul mentioned. In fact, to my knowledge, this phrase immortal soul is absent from every translation in existence. Now, I have not read every translation, so I'm not going to say absolutely, but certainly I've never seen this in any translation, immortal soul. It simply does not exist. I want to consider now some of the ways this word nephesh is rendered within the Old Testament. So we're just going to go through some examples here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time dwelling on this, but I'm going to give you some examples of how this word is used. Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, Yahweh Elohim formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So that is that breath that gives us life. And man became a living soul. So what is soul referring to? It's referring to man. Soul here is referring to a person. And we see here that he became a living soul when Yahweh breathed within him. So prior to this breath, he was not a living soul. He was only a living soul when Yahweh breathed with him, within him. And when this was done, he became a living nephesh. He became a living soul. So again, soul here refers to a person. It doesn't refer to something distinct from the body. It refers to the person. In this case, it refers to Adam. Genesis 1, uh, 20 through 21 and also verse 24 says, And Elohim said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that is life, the fowls that may fly above the earth and the open firmament of heaven. And Elohim created great wells and every living creature that moves, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And Elohim saw that it was good. Verse 24 says, Elohim said, Let the earth bring forth a living creature after his kind, cattle, and the creeping thing, and the beasts of the earth after his kind, and it was so. So the word creature here is from the Hebrew nephesh. So we see here that one of the renderings of nephesh again is creature. Now creature here is not referring to human beings. Creature here is referring to animals. So very specifically, it's referring to aquatic life here in the beginning, and then to cattle and animal life, land animal life. So we find here that creature is also a way this word nephesh is rendered. And again, here it is not referring to a human being, it is referring to a creature. But nonetheless, this creature contains that breath of life. Anything with that breath of life is a nephesh. So as a human being is a nephesh, a creature is a nephesh. Here are some other examples, Genesis 9, 10, 12 through 13, and also 15. Similar to what we saw just a moment ago. It says, with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, 
from all that go out of the ark to every beast on the earth. And Elohim said, this is a token of the covenant which I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for a perpetual generation. I will set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. So we see here the context is referring to the flood. But again, the word creature here is from the Hebrew nephesh. So just one more example showing that nephesh is referring to animals. It's referring to land animals in this case. The animals that were within the ark, the fowls of the air, it says, these are all nephesh. And again, they're nephesh because Yahweh has given them life. When Yahweh gives something life, it is a nephesh, and that is the meaning of nephesh. It is a life, whether a human life or an animal life, whether an aquatic life or a land animal life, it is a life, and it is a nephesh. Okay, let's move on. Genesis 1.30 says, and every, and every beast of the earth, and every fowl of the air, and everything that creeps upon the earth, wherein there is life. I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. Now, Genesis 19, verse 19 says, Behold, now the servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me, and I die. So one here, life is nephesh. In one instance, we find that nephesh again refers to creeping things of the earth, it says, and every fowl. In the example of Genesis 19, nephesh refers to a person. But nephesh here is rendered life. Nephesh can mean life. Nephesh is a living being, whether that be animal or human. Exodus 12, verse 16 says, In the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may he may be done of you. So this is a reference to one of them read, it says here, and mentions man. Or the word man here is nephesh. So we find here that one of the definitions or one of the ways nephesh is rendered is man. Again, man is a living being. Man is a being that Yahweh has given the breath of life to. And this is, again, how we define nephesh. Nephesh is a being that has been given the breath of life, whether, uh, whether human or animal. And here in this case, this is a reference to unleavened bread. And we see here that nephesh is rendered man. Moving on, Genesis 14, verse 21 says, And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. This is when he would go and fetch Lot. Genesis 35, verse 6 says, So Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel, he and all the people that were with him. So we find here in Genesis 14, Nephesh is rendered persons. In Genesis 35, Nephesh is rendered people. So Nephesh, in addition to soul, in addition to life, in addition to creature, in addition to man, Nephesh can also be rendered persons or people. Leviticus 27, verse 2 says, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying to them, When a man shall take a singular vow, the persons shall be for Yahweh by their estimation. Numbers 5, 5 through 6 says, And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, when a man or woman shall commit any sin that, uh, that men commit, 
to do a trespass against Yahweh, and that person be guilty. So here we see nephesh is rendered persons or person. Again, a person is a living being. A person is someone who Yahweh has breathed the breath of life into. And again, this is the meaning of nephesh. Nowhere do we find this concept of an immortal soul, though nephesh is always a person or some entity or some emotion connected with a person. Let's, let's continue on. Psalms 107 Verse 9 says, For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Now, if you look at a lexicon, they will say that nephesh here is rendered and conveying the thought of being hungry. But notice that even though it is conveying the thought of being hungry, that soul is still connected with the person because that person becomes hungry. So hunger is not independent of the person. So while, again, nephesh can refer to these emotions and refer to these appetites, it is always still connected with a person, with a living being. Proverbs 27, verse 7, it says, A full soul loads and honeycomb, but to the hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. So again, just simply referring to somebody who is hungry. What we find here in connection to hunger, that is a nephesh. It's a hungry nephesh. It refers to hunger, but again, it's always associated with a person, if that makes sense. Okay, one more example, I believe, here. Deuteronomy 12, verse 20, it says, When Yahweh, the Elohim, shall enlarge the border as he hath promised thee, and thou shalt say, I will eat flesh, because I saw longs to eat flesh. So this would be an example of a longing nephesh, or a nephesh that desires something. Thou mayest eat flesh whatsoever thy soul lusts after. But again, that person is lusting after. That person desires this thing. So the, the word nephesh, while well, many scholars will say it means an appetite or refers to hunger, it is a hunger that is still connected to a living being. Deuteronomy 14, verse 26 says, And thou shalt bestow the money for whatever thy soul lusts after, for oxen or for sheep or for wine or for strong drink, or for whatever thy soul desires, and thou shalt eat there before Yahweh thy Elohim, and, there, and thou shalt rejoice thou and thy household. So again, we see this concept that Nephesh refers to a longing for something, but that something always is connected with a person or a living being in this case. So these are some examples of nephesh. I could spend the entire message, obviously, quoting passages with nephesh, but this, this gives you a pretty good understanding and, and exa uh, many examples of how this word is used. I want to transition now to the New Testament, to the New Testament Greek. Now, in the New Testament, the word soul is rendered suke. So let me, let me give you this. When we think of ruach, ruach is spirit. We'll talk about that in just, just a few moments. But we have ruach, spirit. Pneuma is the Greek equivalent. Most people know that, ruach and pneuma. When we think of the soul, you got nephesh, and then you have suke. So when you think nephesh in Hebrew, think suke in Greek. It's not a perfect match, but it's as close as we have to the Hebrew nephesh. So here's how Strong's defines suke. So it's from suko, or breath. Breath. What was nephesh, a breathing creature? Suke is breath. By implication, spirit abstractly or concretely, the animal sentiment principle only thus distinguished on the one hand, from pneuma, a pneuma is spirit, ruach. 
which is irrational and immortal soul. Now, we're going to talk more about that immortal soul phrase in just a few moments. And on the other, from Zoe, which is a more vitality, even of plants, these terms thus exactly correspond respectively to the Hebrew nephesh, ruach, and ke. So we find, again, that suke corresponds with nephesh, and that ruach um, corresponds to pneuma. So that is how Strong's defines the words. It says that suke means to breathe, to breathe. And remember, again, that nephesh, so from this standpoint, the words nephesh and suke are nearly identical with both referring to a breathing or living being. It also mentions, again, the word uh, pneuma and also zoe. As I've already mentioned, pneuma corresponds to the Hebrew ruach. Ruach within Hebrew means wind or spirit. In fact, the phrase Holy Spirit comes from ruach, ruach kodesh, kodesh meaning holy, and ruach referring to the spirit. According to Strong's, pneuma can also refer to the immortal soul. While this is not a message on the Greek word pneuma, I will say that nowhere, in the, nowhere do we find this usage applied. As we've already heard, the concept of the immortal soul comes from the Greeks. And again, pneuma is Greek. So it makes sense that pneuma would include this definition as we find from the Greek language. But we don't find this in use within the New Testament. We'll see some examples again that are used to try to convey this concept of the immortal soul, but I think we're going to find that this does not square with what we find within Scripture, that there's a contradiction between the immortal soul and what we actually find within Scripture. Again, the Greeks understood the concept of the immortal soul, but this is a Greek idea. This isn't a Hebraic idea. This isn't a biblical idea, and this idea certainly isn't even Greek in origin. It goes back even further. But again, this is a Greek idea, so again, no surprise that we find this definition within the Greek. But we don't find the usage within Scripture, and that's the important thing to understand. Well, let's focus on the Greek word suke and see how it corresponds to the Hebrew word nephesh. So here's how Thayer's defines this word. This is a breath of life, the vital force, life, that is, which uh, there is life, a living being, the soul. So the two main definitions here is breath and the soul. When it says a soul, this is a seat of the feelings, desires, affections, uh, the aversions of the soul regarded as a moral being distinguished from the everlasting life, the soul as an essence which differs from the body and is not dissolved by death. And that's where we receive this concept of the immortal soul. So Thayer's here says that suke can refer to the immortal soul. Now, I don't have them here, but they give four examples of four passages as to why they believe this. So we're going to review each of these examples later throughout this message. And I will show you why that is not the case. But we see here that Thayer's breaks down suke in two different ways. One is breath, and we've already seen that from Strong's, and the other is soul. Now, in the instance of breath, this is the breath of life. This is corresponding with the Hebrew nephesh. Now, in the case of soul, again, we see here two definitions. One 
is in reference to our feelings and emotions. We also saw that with Nefesh. But we also see here this concept that there is a distinction or a difference between the soul and the body, and that the soul continues after death of the body. This is, by definition, what the concept of the immortal soul is. And again, we're going to see why that is not the case. Before that, though, I want to share some more information about suke. So here's how the King James translates suke. It says, in the following manner, soul 58 times, life 40 times, mind 3 times, heart 1 time, heartily um, 1 time, and uh, not translated 2 times. So again, we find here that soul is predominantly the rendering for suke. But we also find here that life is used 40 times for this word suke within the, within the New Testament, with mind occurring three times. What we don't see here is the concept of the immortal soul. Nothing here is listed about the immortal soul. Nothing here is stated about the immortal soul. It is missing. It is absent. Yet, according to my knowledge, the phrase immortal soul is absent from all translations in both the Old and New Testament. As we'll see here, it's most often used as soul or life within the New Testament of the King James. And that's an important concept to understand. As we saw from the Strong's word, suitcase simply means breath. And like the Hebrew word nephesh, refers to a breathing or living being. It can also simply refer to life, to a person's life. Let's now talk about this uh, definition of the immortal soul that we find from Thayer's. Again, it provides four different examples as to why this belief is held amongst scholarship. The examples include Matthew 10, verse 28, Acts 2, verse 27, Revelation 6, verse 9, and Revelation 20, verse 4. Now, we'll take a look at each one of these examples and explain why these instances do not refer to an immortal soul. The one most often used and referred to is what we find in Matthew 10, verse 28. So I want to begin there, Matthew 10, verse 28. It says here, and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Based on what we find here, many believe Yahshua is teaching this concept of the immortal soul, that they say that he is showing a distinction between the body and the soul. So how do we explain this? So the word body is, this is from the Greek summa. Strong's defines as a body, as a sound whole. So it simply refers to the body, soma. The word soul, again, is the Greek word suke. So suke means what? Suke means breathe or breath and life. It also means heart or mind or other things, but the two main definitions are soul and, and life. Soul and life. So what is the context here? What is Yahshua speaking about? Yahshua is speaking about Gehenna. What is Gehenna? Or Gehenna refers to the lake of fire. Gehenna actually refers to the valley of Hinnom, very specifically. You see in Israel, in the city of Jerusalem, there is two main valleys. There is the Kidron Valley, and there is the valley of Hinnom. And they kind of do this here in the old city. The Valley of Hinnom was basically where Israel would throw their trash. It was always burning. It was the 
Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, became known as Gehenna, and as we know, represents a lake of fire. So that is what Gehenna is. Gehenna, by the way, is different from Hades, as a side note. Hades refers to Sheol. Sheol is Hebrew. Hades is Greek. Now, many scholars, just as, just as a quick reference, will say that Hades should correspond to Sheol. But like Suke or like Numa, the Greeks have interjected some definitions that are not found within the Hebrew. But again, this is speaking about Gehenna or the lake of fire. So here's how I understand this. Number one, when Yahshua uses the word suke, he's referring to the breath or the life within us. And number two, he's stating here that only he can destroy life in Gehenna or the lake of fire. As we see in Revelation 20, in the end, Yahshua will be the one who will judge mankind. He will be the one who will judge mankind based on how, how they live, based on their works. Inevitably, for the wicked, we know that the wicked will be thrown into the lake of fire. They will be thrown into the lake of fire. Only Yahshua can do this. Nobody in this room, nobody alive, nobody that's ever lived, nobody that will ever live, will be given the authority or the ability to judge mankind and determine whether that person will be cast into the lake of fire. The only one in existence that will be given this authority and has been given this authority and will be the one to usher this and oversee this process is Yahshua the Messiah. This, this is what Yahshua is saying. He's saying, only I have that ability. Only I have that ability. Again, what does he say here? Fear them not, which can kill the body. So the body is a physical body. But are not able to kill the suke, not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and and body, so he will destroy the life that I have given you and the body within Gehenna or the lake of fire. This is referring to the lake of fire. This is referring to judgment. And this is something only Yahshua has been given. So this is why this is not referring to the immortal soul. There's nothing here in reference to the immortal soul. Yahshua is simply making the statement that we're not to fear mankind, which can kill our bodies, kill us today. But inevitably... Salvation is Yahshua's decision. That's his decision. And that life, whether he grants us eternal life or not, or whether we are cast into the lake of fire because of rebellion, this is something that he alone will determine. I believe this is a meaning here of what we find in Matthew 10. Nothing to do with your mortal soul. Yahshua is simply saying, don't fear a person who can kill us today. But fear him, fear him, who can kill us and remove and extinguish and take away our life forever in Gehenna, or the lake of fire. Well, let's move on now to Acts 2, verse 22, or 27. This is another passage used. It says, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So what do we find in this passage? Well, this is speaking about the resurrection of Yahshua the Messiah. Some will claim based on this passage that this is showing evidence that the soul is immortal or lives on forever because Yahshua's soul would not see corruption in the grave. I see no evidence here supporting this notion. What we see here is that Yahweh did not allow Yahshua's body to see corruption or decay within the grave. We know that the father, Yahweh, raised his son Yahshua from the grave. Remember that they went to the tomb. What happened? 
What happened when they went to the tomb? What did they find when they entered the tomb? Was there a body? No, Yahshua's body was gone. Yahshua had been resurrected, his body had been changed, and he was now a spirit essence. But this is not referring to an immortal soul. This is simply referring to Yahshua's resurrection. This is not referring to the immortal soul, but to immortal life. And that happens only at the resurrection. But again, that is not a soul that is distinct from the body. That is a transformation that occurs at the resurrection. And that is the difference. It is not an immortal soul. It is not something we, that we have innately within us. It is something that Yahweh grants to us, to those who have been found worthy. You know, we see this promise also in our own resurrection. What does scripture say about our resurrection? Paul speaks about the resurrection in 1 Thessalonians 4. You don't need to turn there, but he speaks about how we'll be changed. How in the last trump we're going to be changed. That we're going to be resurrected. Those who are dead, they're going to be resurrected. So they're going to be lifted. And, 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 and once they're resurrected, Yahweh's going to change them from mortal to immortal. From corruptible to incorruptible. From flesh to spirit. This is when we gain immortality. But it's not a separate immortal soul. It is something, a gift that Yahweh bestows upon us. As he has given us life today, he will give us eternal life if we're found worthy. But, but again, it's still a person. It's a transformation of what we are today into what we will be if we're found worthy. So again, we see no concept here of the immortal soul. Simply, again, a description of Yahshua's own resurrection and that Yahweh did not allow his son's body to decay within the grave. His body was gone because he had been resurrected and changed to spirit being. Revelation 6, 9, 9 through 11, it says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altars of the souls of them that were slain for the word of Elohim and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Yahweh? Holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So many will claim here that this is referring to the souls or martyrs of those who were slain for the word of Yahweh. I agree with that. I agree with that. I believe that this is referring to the souls of the martyrs of those who were slain. Many will go, though, further and say that the souls who are crying out shows a consciousness of the soul. Shows a consciousness, shows that the soul is again separate from the body and that the soul continues to live on because here they are crying out. They are dead. They are deceased. But yet we find that they are crying out from the grave and we find Yahweh responding to them. And we find Yahweh giving a white robe to them. So they will say that this is evidence of the immortal soul. So how do we explain this? Well, I believe this is an allegory. Showing the promise of salvation to those who die as a martyr. Die, those who die as a martyr to Yahweh's word. You know, Yahshua said this, and I think there's a lot of similarity or comparison to this and what we find here. So Matthew 10, verse 39, here's what Yahshua says. He says, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses, my life for his, uh, loses his life for my sake will find it. 
So Joshua gave us a promise. He said that if we serve him and if we lose our life for him, that we're going to find life in the resurrection to come. And what we find here in Revelation is an allegory showing that those who die will be given white robes, symbolizing eternal life within Yahweh's kingdom. But this is an allegory. This is not something that is happening. This is an allegory. We see a similar example to this type of allegorical usage in Genesis 4, verse 10, in reference to the blood of Abel. It says there, quote, And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries out or cries unto me from the ground. And we know that blood literally does not cry out. Cain's blood was not crying out in the literal sense, but Yahweh used this as symbolic of what Cain did to his brother. That the blood crying out to Yahweh was a witness to what Cain did to Abel. It's an allegorical usage, and we find the same usage in Revelation 6. We have the souls crying out, being promised, giving, being given white robes and promised eternal life. Another example that they often use is Revelation 20, verse 4, and it said, says there, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Yahshua and for the word of Yahweh, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Messiah a thousand years. Now again, many will claim here that this provides proof for the immortal soul. For me, this simply shows that the same message we saw in Revelation 6, and that is those who are beheaded, those who die as a martyr, that they're going to receive eternal life within Yahweh's kingdom. And as we see here, they're going to reign and rule with Yahshua for the 1,000 years of the millennium. But again, this is allegorically speaking. This is allegorically speaking. They will be given salvation. But when we're in the grave, we are dead. We are unconscious. We are not in a state of knowing. This notion is nothing more of the construct of Greek philosophy, this concept of the immortal soul. And again, it did not even originate with the Greeks. It was given to them by the Egyptians and the Babylonians. But again, it's not Hebrew. There's nothing within the Hebrew mindset. There's nothing within the Old Testament remotely giving rise to this concept of the immortal soul. I want to close now with one more passage, this time showing a showing a, a lack of consciousness in the grave. Psalms 146, verse 4 says, His breath goes forth, he returns to his earth, and that very day, what day? The very day that he dies, and that very day his thoughts perish. So what do we find here in the psalm? Where we see here that when we die, that our breath goes forth, says we return to the earth, and then our thoughts in that day perishes, or comes to an end. In other words, there, are no, there is no consciousness after death. Well, let's look at each one of these in more detail. 
What does it mean here when it says our breath goes forth? Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, we find there that it says that, that our breath, or ruach, returns to Yahweh when we die. Now, again, ruach can also mean breath. So there's even a connection between ruach and nephesh. They can both refer to breath. Here's what it says in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. It says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was. And we also see that in Psalms 146. And then it says, In the spirit, which is ruach in Hebrew, Ruach shall return unto Elohim who gave it. So scripture shows that when we die, that we return back to the earth, and that our Ruach, our breath, or the spirit within us, returns back to him, where it is preserved until the resurrection. Again, Ruach here refers to the breath of life that Yahweh imparts upon every living creature, giving them the ability to be defined as a nephesh. A nephesh is a breathing person a breathing creature. We also see here that we return to the earth, or this is simply describing the, the way a body decays within the grave. Last thing we see here is that when we die, again, our thoughts perish or come to an end. Now, the word thoughts here comes from the Hebrew eshtonoth. It's found only once. It's found only here. This word is found nowhere else. In Hebrew, it literally means to think, to think. So as we find from Yahweh's word, when we die, our breath or ruach returns to Yahweh, our bodies decay in the grave. And in that moment, it says our thoughts, our ability to think, comes to an end. In other words, we are in the grave unconscious, waiting for the resurrection, waiting for Yahshua's return. And again, when we, he returns, we know that he will raise first the deceased, those who are dead, he will return, I believe, that, that, that uh, ruach, that breath, and we will be a nephesh. But we will not be a mortal nephesh. We will be an immortal nephesh. Because a nephesh is simply a living being. And I believe that even in our resurrected state, will we be considered a nephesh. I want to summarize now some of the points we covered within this message. As we find from many historians, the concept of the immortal soul goes back to the Egyptians and Babylonians. We also know that it was the Greeks who passed this on to Judaism and later to Christianity. According to biblical scholars, there's no such concept of the immortal soul within the scriptures or within the Hebraic New Test Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the word soul comes from the Hebrew word nephesh. Nephesh simply means breath and refers to life or to a living person or being or creature. The three main ways nephesh is rendered in the Old Testament is soul, life, and person. The word for soul in Greek is suke, and suke means breath. Again, nephesh means a breathing creature. In Greek, suke simply means breath. The three main ways suke is rendered in the New Testament is soul, life, and mind. So as we um, see here, there's absolutely no evidence for the immortal soul. This concept, again, goes back to the Babylonians, it goes back to the Egyptians, it goes back to the Greeks, it goes back to those pagan, pagan nations, which, again, gave this concept to, the, to Judaism and then eventually to Christianity. But it is nowhere to be found within Scripture. Okay, whereas I promised, and I know everybody's very excited about this next step here, we have a 
small poll, 14 questions. We'll see how well everybody paid attention. I did not see any nodding heads today, so that is good. So it looks like we've, oh, there it is. Okay. Okay, so according to many historians, where did the immortal soul belief originate? Was it the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, or the Greeks? So where do we find this? Or we know, as we heard in the message, it certainly wasn't the early church. This concept of the immortal soul goes back much, much further. So let's see here, 21% are saying the Babylonians. I don't believe I even mentioned the Assyrians within the message, but that's okay. The uh, Egyptians are at 64%, and the Greeks are 12%. Okay, so let's show the answer here. 63%, so not quite 100%, but as uh, Brother Javon might say, 61 is better than than, uh, 50. I don't know. I don't know what Brother Javon would say here. (laughs) 59%, actually. Okay. So that's that's not great. I'll be honest, not great. Okay. Moving on. The belief of the immortal soul teaches... The body, soul, and spirit form a triune relationship. The soul is distinct from the body and continues after death. The soul goes into heaven after death. The soul and body are both immortal. Okay, so I'm glad we have some Trinity folks in the room here. 5%, the body, soul, and spirit form a triune relationship. The soul goes to heaven after death. The soul is distinct from the body and continues after death. The soul and body are both immortal. I guess no one's taken me up on that last option there. Okay, let's see which one's correct here. 76%. Oh, there it is. There's always one. There's always one. I think they do it just to frustrate me, to be honest with you. Okay, let's move on. Who was the Hellenistic Jewish philosopher responsible for advancing the belief of the immortal soul among the Jews? Was it Plato, Eliezer, Hillel, or Yeshiva? Who was it? Plato, Eliezer, Hillel, or Yeshiva? Now, you've already blown it. I was hoping 100% with this one here. And and I will say that I've uh, configured the questions where you can't go back and change your answer. That's kind of cheating. Okay, or we have uh, really across the board here. I don't remember mentioning Eliezer, Hillel, or Yeshiva, but 80%. Jose mentioned Yeshiva, really. Uh, Jose, Jose is trying to confuse. Okay, 83%. Um, in addition to the Greeks and Egyptians, the Jewish encyclopedia also mentions this empire in connection to the immortal soul. We've got the Assyrians the Babylonians, the Persians, or the Romans? Which one is mentioned by the Jewish encyclopedia? The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, or the Romans? So 4% is saying Assyrians. Again, I don't remember mentioning Assyrians. Persians, I don't think we even mentioned the word Persian. 
Maybe we might have mentioned the word Roman, but I don't remember the word Roman. So the Babylonians. Okay, 83% are right. That was another 100% I was hoping for, but that's okay. 84%. Okay, what is the Hebrew word for soul? Now, I'm I'm expecting 100% here. I'm just Ruach, Suke, Kodesh, or Nefesh. Which one is the Hebrew word for soul? Okay. So we got 72% say Nefesh. We have 14 for Ruach. We have 11 for, for uh, Suke. And 3 for Kodesh. Okay, so real quickly. Ruach means what? Ruach means spirit. Suke is Hebrew, Greek. Greek. And Kodesh, it means holy. And Nefesh means soul. So, okay. That's kind of a disappointment, honestly, 76%. Okay. As long as we're trying. What is the meaning of Nefesh? Breathing creature, person, life, or all of the above? So what is the meaning of Nefesh? So breathing creature, person, life. Some were saying all of the above. Give that just, just a few more seconds here to see where we settle on here. Breathing creature, 10%. Okay. How many people have taken tests in their life? Okay. When we see all of the above, generally it's all of the above. <laughs> just saying. All of the above is right. Okay. What are the top three ways Nefesh is rendered in the King James? Life, person, body. Person, mind, heart. Soul, life, or person. Desire, soul, or creature. So what are the three most popular or main ways Nefesh is rendered within the King James? Life, person, body. Person, mind, heart, soul, life, person, or desire, soul, creature. So how is this rendered? So 9, 13% of you are saying life, person, body. 21 are saying desire, soul, and creature. Now, we did see those definitions, right? We saw those definitions, sort of. I'm not sure if it said desire or not, but that's essentially the meaning. Okay, I think that's good. So 64%, soul, life, and person. The word... 67. The word uh, soul should have been the uh, give me there. Soul. Okay, let's move on. How is Nephesh rendered in Genesis 9, 10 through 15? So th- th- this shows who was paying attention or taking notes, one or the other. So how is Nephesh rendered in Genesis 9, 10 through 15? Creature, soul, person, or man? Okay. So 72% say a creature, 10% say soul, and 14% says man. Okay, so let's, let's show them the answer here. So that's not bad, that's 79%, and that's certainly not something I focused on, so 81%, that's, that's good. Okay, 
How is Nephesh rendered in Genesis 1.30 and also 19, verse 19? Breath, man, life, or immortal soul? Now, if I see anybody click on immortal soul, I'm just going to tell you, we're going to have a counseling session after this message. So, oh, that's 21%. That, that may be a group discussion there, right? Yes. I have to tell you, I... That's way beyond even one. Okay, so 32%, 9%, 47%, 12%. I'm still not sure how that 12%, that just boggles my mind. Okay, 47%, so 47%. So not quite 50%, but that one's, that one's difficult, except for the immortal soul. That should have been very easy to, to avoid the immortal soul, so... If, if, if you will, just come to me after service and we'll, we'll, we'll talk. Okay. What is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew nephesh? Suke, pneuma, zoe, or ruach? What is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew nephesh? Okay, so 79% is saying suke, pneuma, 12%, zoe at 4%, and a ruach at 4%. Okay, I guess we can probably show the answer here. The majority has it, 70-something uh, percent. So suke is right. Suke is the equivalent to nefesh. Okay, let's move on. How does Strong's define suke? Wind, breath, creature, or life? How does strong, Strong's define suke? Okay, so 11% or 9% are saying wind. Some are saying creature. Some are saying life. The majority here saying breath. Okay, let's see here. Why don't you go ahead and lock these two, if you would, Lucas, after. There you go. So we can stop the movement here. So 75%, so three quarters here are right. The uh, Strong's defines this as breath. Okay. Three more. What are the three main ways suke is rendered in the King James? Soul, life, heart, soul, life, mind. Breast, soul, life. Or creature, soul, spirit. So how is suke rendered or translated in the King James? Okay, some are saying soul, life, heart. Some are saying soul, mind, life. The majority is saying breath, soul, and life. Okay, let's show the correct answer here, and let's lock that. 26%, 26%. I really feel like I should start over at this point. I'm seeing nods, it's start over. If I had the energy, I would start over. I don't have the energy today. Okay, two more. How many times is suke rendered a life in the New Testament of the King James? Zero, 40, 60, or 80? How often or how many times do we find the word life for suke? Okay, so the majority is saying 40 times and some are saying 60. Some are saying zero. Again, some of these you should know, or it's certainly not zero. So I guess that you can just stop selecting A there. 
Okay, let's show the right answer. Okay, the majority got it right. That's very good. So 40%. It's kind of a hard one. That's more of a, uh, a st statistical number there, so 40. Okay, one more. Where does Scripture say his breath goes forth and he returns to his earth, and that very day his thoughts perished? We find that in Exodus 3, verse 15, Psalms 146, verse 4, Matthew 10, verse 28, or Proverbs 30, verse 4. Where do we find that? Now, all of those passages should mean something to you, by the way. All of those are notable passages. And we'll talk, maybe I'll go through them just real quick afterwards, after we uh, lock this here. Give you just a few more seconds to respond. Okay, let's lock the question here. So the majority, 78%, you got that right. Uh, Psalms 146, verse 4. So we know what 146, verse 4 says. What about Exodus 3, verse 15? What do we find there? What do we find there? Or we find there Yahweh revealing him, his name, to Moses, right? Exodus 3, verse 15, very critical passage. Matthew 10, verse 28, what's, what's that passage about? Now, we spent some time reviewing this. This is the instance of that man cannot destroy the soul, right? Because a soul is suke, and it's in reference to Gehenna, or the lake of fire, and only Yahshua can destroy Suke within the lake of fire. Proverbs 30, verse 4, what's the significance of Proverbs 30, verse 4? What is his name? And it says, what is his son's name, if you know? Interestingly, we find here there are reference not only to Yahweh's name, but to Yahshua's name. Proverbs 30, verse 4. That's what kind of started this movement, by the way, Proverbs 30, verse 4. Okay, let's continue. I think that's it. That's it. Okay. Well, I pray this uh, message has been a blessing to you, and it's been a good review. Hopefully everybody got 100% on the uh, quiz, and uh, may Yahweh bless you.